Hey everybody, this is Steve Carroll, and you're listening to the Yimbase Podcast. In today's episode, we'll be covering non-pregnant vaginal bleeding. There's a big difference in the workup and overall disposition of patients with vaginal bleeding who are not pregnant. As always, we'll review what to look for regarding the patient's vital signs, important questions to ask in the patient's history, the important exam findings, as well as labs, imaging, and disposition. This episode was written and recorded by Adara Landry, an EM senior resident at NYU Bellevue, and Joe Kennedy, a fourth-year medical student from Mayo Medical School, who matched into EM just after this episode was recorded. As always, this podcast is represented the views of opinions about defense, the U.S. Army, and the Shawshank EM residency program. With that said, here's Adara Landry and Joe Kennedy talking about non-pregnant vaginal bleeding. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of EM Basic. I'm Joe Kennedy, a medical student at Mayo Medical School and a soon-to-be EM resident. With me is Adara Landry, who is a fourth-year EM resident at NYU Bellevue. Adara is a co-founder and author at emdocs.net, another popular foam website with some phenomenal resources for medical students, residents, and practicing EM physicians alike. Thanks for the introduction, Joe. So basically, we're here today to talk about the workup for non-pregnant vaginal bleeding in the emergency department. Now, this is a complaint you will see in females who are only a few days old, all the way up to those in their 90s. And while it can seem tough at first to try and sort out through the many reasons that women present with vaginal bleeding, you can narrow your differential pretty quickly by assessing vitals and taking a smart, focused history with a thorough exam. Adara, you're absolutely right. Rather than dwell on all the details that people had to memorize for their OB rotation about menstrual hormonal changes, we're really going to emphasize the critical information. Since the majority of vaginal bleeding seen in the ED is non-life-threatening, we'll start there. After that, we'll cover a critical care case and focus on the basics of resuscitating a massively bleeding patient. By the end, you'll be ready to handle anything that comes your way confidently. Yeah, I totally agree. And one of the most important things to do when any bleeding patient presents is to take a look at the triage note or talk to your nurses. If you see a hypotensive or tachycardic patient or someone more seasoned than you suggests that you need to be worried, then move quickly. Also, don't forget from Steve's talk on pregnant vaginal bleeding that blood can actually irritate the peritoneum and cause a seemingly paradoxical bradycardia. So don't let the absence of a fast heart rate steer you away from assessing a sick patient. So let's say you assess your patient and determine that she is stable. Well, then you can start your routine workup. Hey, Joe, you want to tell them how to start, how you start working up your stable, non-pregnant vaginal bleeding patient? Okay. So we have a stable patient with a chief complaint of vaginal bleeding. For most cases of non-pregnant vaginal bleeding, the key clues lie in the history. Again, we're assuming here that our patient, to the best of your knowledge, isn't pregnant. Of course, in any female patient aged 9 to 60, you'll never be wrong in getting at the very least a urine beta HCG, because even if you aren't concerned about pregnancy causing their chief complaint, the patient's pregnancy status could certainly alter any decisions you make about imaging or treatment. So let's assume you're seeing a stable patient that vehemently denies they could be pregnant and also has a negative urine pregnancy test. I usually start my history by trying to quantify how much bleeding is actually occurring. So ask about how often the patient changes either pads or tampons, as well as the size of any clots that were passed. I'll never forget a patient I saw an exam that had clots in the diaper that were about 2 by 2 by 10 inches in size. This type of objective information may not have great sensitivity or specificity for any disease process but it certainly can help you tell the story to an attending or a consulting service. The football-sized clot story 
tends to get people to listen much more than the occasional mild spotting story. You need to press for specifics here. Try and get the number of pads in the last 24 hours, remembering that truly heavy bleeding generally means that tampons aren't an option, and that a woman will need to change pads more often than every three hours, and generally more likely every one hour. Again, these are just guidelines, but if you're going to spend the time to get a good history, then make sure to try and nail down specific data that everyone can base their decision-making off of. So then I move on to the following questions. Do you feel weak, lightheaded, short of breath, or have chest pain? The patient's management and disposition all depend on her stability, so get this information early during your workup. This will tell you if your patient has symptomatic anemia as well. Do you have problems with your liver, kidneys, heart, or blood? Coexisting liver disease is important when thinking about coagulopathies that complicate vaginal bleeding, coronary artery disease, or history of MI may alter your decision to transfuse, and any bleeding diathesis will be important to consider as you approach the patient. Depending on the patient's age, you can also delve into thromboembolic risk factors. Many of the stabilization and treatment options for non-pregnant vaginal bleeding involve the use of estrogen or combo OCPs, so try to save yourself time later by asking things about smoking history, stroke history, and get some basic cardiovascular risk factors. Next, I move on to the do you have any pain question. It's often pretty obvious, but it can quickly help sort vaginal bleeding into two categories. If you have midline pain, you can consider both vaginal and bladder etiologies. A rip-roaring, hemorrhaging cystitis can easily muddy the picture, but if you have a patient with vaginal bleeding and pronounced left lower quadrant pain, then you should definitely be more concerned about pelvic inflammatory disease or perhaps ovarian pathology. Then you want to ask, what medications are you on? This can easily be ignored, especially if someone in the ED reviews the medication list prior to a patient being brought back, but you always have to think about this in a patient with vaginal bleeding. Outside of the usual offenders, like anticoagulating medications, Carefully review any hormonal medications the patient might be taking, including vaginal creams, in vitro fertilization medications, intrauterine devices, Nexplanon, etc. The simple question of what medications do you take will often miss any of these other hormonal release agents that patients often forget to mention. It is especially important to be aware of any hormonal medications like chronic estrogen therapy because these present unique risk factors for endometrial cancer. It will also guide your decision to treat with an agent like medroxyprogesterone or estrogen when it comes time for disposition. Again, don't forget to ask about anticoagulating or antiplatelet medications early on because resuscitation, treatment, and disposition all depend greatly on this. Next, you want to move on to a focused gyne history. So any ED-focused gyne history should always have five elements. Regardless of the chief complaint, if you think about these five things, then you will generally always have what you need to know to frame the problem and accurately communicate with anyone else in the hospital. I encourage you to make a quick list of these and keep them on a reference, and being sure to ask every woman with lower abdominal pain or gyne complaints that you evaluate in the ED these five questions. First question, have you ever been pregnant, and what were the outcomes of the pregnancies? A good set of G's and P's is useful for any gyne complaint, not only in framing different risk factors, but also for communicating with the ED staff and any consult you need to call. The second question, are you menstruating, and if so, when was your last menstrual period? This is another critical question because you can easily divide your differential diagnosis lists into three piles based on the answer. Sometimes it might seem obvious, for example, vaginal bleeding in a 4-year-old as compared to an 89-year-old, but for just about anyone in between, it's a good idea to ask and be certain that you have a solid answer. If you didn't nail down the details of flow volume, duration, and timing when you got your history earlier, Make sure to get this info now. 
So question number three, have you ever had any abnormal pap smears, gynecologic surgeries, or gynecologic procedures performed for any reason? It's probably several questions there, but you can see what it encompasses. So again here, we're looking for GU risk factors, but also for other hints about anything including a history of fibroids, hysterectomies, cervical incompetence, or anything else that the patient may not immediately think about mentioning. I've also found that it can be exceedingly hard to find details of procedures like hysteroscopies performed in the office, cervical conization, etc., because all of those aren't usually the most accessible information in the medical record. Most women remember these procedures, and again, they help determine risk factors for different gyne complaints that present to the ED. So the fourth question, are you sexually active, and if so, have you ever had any sexually transmitted infections? So keep in mind that STIs can present with vaginal bleeding as well. Somewhere between 2-10% to 10 of reproductive-aged women presenting to the ED with vaginal bleeding will have either an STI as the primary problem or something complicating the complaint. Sometimes the friability of the cervix can cause pain with intercourse or dyspareunia. Ask about this. It might be obvious, but if you are caring for an adolescent patient, then there is absolutely no excuse to kick parents, parents out to the waiting room when you go through these questions. An alternative might be to let them hang out in the exam room and then kick them out when you do the pelvic exam, but in any regard, you absolutely have to make sure you get them to get away and get an unbiased answer to this question. Again, when thinking about this, don't forget to probe for abuse and pelvic trauma. Be especially vigilant when caring for vulnerable patients and those who do not have a voice of their own. You can make a critical difference here. So, question number five. Can you think of anything else about your personal or family gynecologic history that we haven't covered? You'll be amazed at answers to this question. You'll certainly cover a lot of ground with the previous four questions, but if you wait five to ten seconds and really patiently listen while a woman thinks about this answer, you'll often uncover something useful. Sounds good, Joe. You know, I always start my exam just by looking at the patient. We all know what a healthy, normal person looks like. A sick patient might be diaphoretic, pale, weak, grabbing her abdomen, or just altered. So take 20 seconds and scan your patient for all of these findings. After assessing for stability, you can focus your exam for these patients by starting to expose their abdomen. Look for distension of the abdomen, skin color changes such as bruising, dusky gray or pale skin. Palpate all quadrants for any rebound or tenderness. Feel for a gravid uterus or any fibroids or masses. And then after that external exam, I then perform a genital exam. In the stable patient, you can walk her over to the OBGYN room. Unstable patients, however, are difficult to transfer. And you also don't want them in the back of the ED without a monitor. So a trick is to take a bedpan and turn it over and prop it under the patient's buttocks. This extra elevation makes a bedside speculum exam easier on a normal stretcher. Start by inspecting the external genitalia and urethra, followed by the vaginal canal. Look for large clots, pooled blood, or active bleeding. If there's any pooled blood, use gauze or swab sticks to remove it, and then see how fast it reaccumulates. I used to have my patients cough to see if blood rushes out of the cervix, but I've never found this to be useful, so I stopped doing it. So after inspection, I palpate the vaginal walls for any sort of tears or masses, and then I check the cervix for tenderness, as well as the adenexa and uterus for any masses or tenderness. And remember to do the exam in a slow-paced voice, 
and stop to explain to your patients the details so they feel like they're aware and in control of the situation. I always have a chaperone and document the person's name in the chart as well. And I don't pick and choose who gets a chaperone. I just always do it. Yeah, well, Adara, that's great advice. So now that we have our exam figured out, let's go ahead and break our differential down into four categories. So the first includes extra GU bleeding, and the other three are all based on vaginal bleeding based on menstrual status. So start by doing due diligence and ruling out the obvious. Hopefully by this point, you have confirmed that a blood source isn't actually coming from the urethra or anus, or from a labial or skin source for that matter. You should consider a UTI, hemorrhoids, ulcerating herpetic vulvar lesions, rectovaginal fistulas, and other GU pathology, and make sure to at least let your attending know that these type of things have crossed your mind. The next branch point in your thinking revolves around menstrual status. We'll think about the prepubertal group of girls first. Occasionally, a new parent might bring their neonate in with concerns about vaginal bleeding. This typically occurs within three days to three weeks of life and rarely lasts for more than a few days. If they are at the ED with this concern, they're likely very worried and a bit of reassurance will go a long way here. You can also take a minute to talk to this parent about breastfeeding, sleep hygiene, and a few other basic newborn expectant management topics. Now let's move on to toddlers and other girls in the pre-menarche age group. Most commonly, these patients will have vulvovaginitis, which is sort of a wastebasket term for anything from a mild infection, most often group A strep, to environmental insults that can cause inflammation of the GU tract. The things you absolutely want to rule out in the ED, however, are trauma, foreign body, and abuse. Your history should guide you with most of these. From a disposition standpoint, however, it's imperative you do not discharge an eight-year-old girl home to an abusive environment because you did not consider it in your differential. In younger girls, it can be hard to get any history of a foreign body, so if the parents are telling you that the bleeding has been going on for a little while and that the bleeding or discharge is starting to smell funny, you really need to consider this diagnosis. Again, though, just to be clear, don't think that uncomplicated strep vaginitis means that some sort of abuse has occurred. These minor infections and inflammation happen all the time in the absence of abuse. Okay, so once you move on to the much larger group of women with vaginal bleeding that are premenopausal, the differential changes significantly. Here, you can think about a further two categories and separate the differential based on painless or painful vaginal bleeding. So we'll start with painful. The painful causes that have to be considered include a ruptured ovarian cyst, PID, ovarian torsion, a ruptured endometrioma, and trauma or abuse. Keep in mind it's very rare for ovarian torsion to present with bleeding, but it can happen, rarely. Generally, the torsion patient will be incredibly uncomfortable and not bleeding, whereas a patient with a hemorrhagic ovarian cyst can be bleeding a small amount and will be uncomfortable, but really not requiring a pyxis full of morphine to keep calm. You should then think about the painless causes, which can range from coagulation disorders like von Willebrand's disease, especially in the adolescent age group, and then structural causes after that. So once you get to the perimenopausal period, you need to be sure that either your ED plan or your disposition plan includes some mechanism for ruling out cancer. Any patient with vaginal bleeding older than 45 or so, or really any patient with significant risk factors for cancer, should be thought to have cancer until you can prove otherwise, either by imaging or another intervention. In general, though, young and non-pregnant patients can go home without imaging. More to come on this later. So now, when you're thinking about cancers and structural causes, start from the ovaries and move down to the end of the vagina, and you should be able to remember most causes. These include, thinking anatomically, 
ovarian tumors, adnexal tumors or fibroids, endometrial or cervical tumors, endometrial and cervical polyps, and things like cervical atropion due to hormonal agent use, and finally gynecologic infections, which in many cases end up being painless. Other very common structural causes of bleeding in this age group include fibroids, which may or not be previously known to the patient, and things like cervical or endometrial polyps that can bleed for no good reason. So before we get to what is likely going to be the category of bleeding that is most common, let's review the approach one more time. So, with women who are still having their period, you start by thinking about painful versus painless causes. And certainly there's a bit of overlap with these two. Your next thought is to take the myriad of painless causes and try to sort things out structurally in a systematic way so that you aren't forgetting anything. Now that you've done this, you should consider dysfunctional uterine bleeding as a cause. No one really likes this term because it's not that descriptive, so you can try and modify it a bit further by indicating whether things are ovulatory, which is about 10% of cases, or anovulatory, about 90% of cases, and therefore far more likely. So how can you tell the difference? The easiest way to think about ovulatory dysfunctional uterine bleeding is being essentially a significantly worse manifestation of a normal period, kind of like a period from hell. You'll typically have at least some of the other accompanying symptoms of ovulation and menstruation accompanying the vaginal bleeding, like some mid-cycle cramping, breast tenderness, and things along those lines. If the bleeding occurs sporadically, and there is no evidence for any of the usual menstrual, menstrual symptoms, it's safe to call it anovulatory bleeding. If you're still confused, don't worry, because it doesn't change your ED management one bit. The important thing for you to think about is that you can't call vaginal bleeding dysfunctional uterine bleeding until you have ruled out the possibility that someone has some sort of a structural cause, especially a tumor, that might be contributing. So now let's move on to the postmenopausal age group that comes to the ED with vaginal bleeding. The differential here is cancer, 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 and cancer, as far as you need to be concerned. These include both gyne malignancies and leukemias with associated bleeding, so look carefully at your CBC with diff to see if anything stands out. For malignant gyne bleeding, the uterus is statistically the most likely source, but again, thinking anatomically and sequentially, the ovaries, cervix, vagina, and exterior exterior structures all have to be considered as well. Outside of cancer, other non-cancerous masses like fibroids, polyps, and endometrial hyperplasia can still cause problems in this age group. The other two big offenders that start to come in with these postmenopausal women are things like atrophic vaginitis and exogenous hormone use. The last two, while they might be a little more obvious from the history, should never really be entertained until a thorough ED and or outpatient workup is complete. In other words, just because a postmenopausal woman may have some evidence of dryness and atrophy when you're doing your pelvic exam, don't chalk up the concern just to that. You have to go searching for cancer and make sure that a follow-up appointment is in place if the patient is stable and won't be admitted. Now, Adara, at this point, we've kind of made some decisions on lab tests and imaging, and with our broad differential, we should have a good idea on how to go about treatment. What kind of options do we have, and how do we determine disposition for these patients and really think about how to best work them up? So, Joe, most of your vaginal bleeding patients will be fine and appropriate for discharge, with not much management done in the emergency room. In a stable patient with normal vitals and normal CBC who is not pregnant, I have them follow up with OBGYN within a week. Some patients will request a pelvic ultrasound prior to discharge, but in a non-pregnant patient, there really is no urgency for doing these in the emergency room 
unless your patient is postpartum and you're concerned about retained products of conception. Patients can benefit from a short course of estrogen to help stop the bleeding. The contraindication for starting estrogen, though, are in patients with hypercoagulability and risk for DVT and PE. Progestin-only medication poses a lower risk for clots, but there's no strict regimen for doing this. Now, ACOG recommends medroxyprogesterone acetate, 20 milligrams three times a day for seven days. You can also use a tapered schedule of high-dose estrogen to get things under control quickly. See the show notes for an example of how this taper works, but definitely do some more reading to understand pros and cons of this approach. Now, since estrogen can make women more nauseous, you should also write for a script of an antiemetic as a backup. I recommend touching base with GYN prior to starting hormonal therapy, but this will definitely depend on the environment you are working in. NSAIDs reduce prostaglandin levels and help increase vasoconstriction of the uterus to mitigate bleeding. Patients who are younger with possible anovulatory cycles can benefit from NSAIDs. Prolonged bleeding puts patients at risk for iron deficiency anemia, so give patients a script for iron supplementation, but warn them of dark stools and GI upset while taking iron. Anyone who's postmenopausal with bleeding should be referred to GYN to evaluate for malignancy. All patients, however, can usually follow up with strict bleeding precautions, such as return if you are bleeding through more than one pad per hour, or if you start passing large clots, or if you start to feel short of breath or with a headache or dizzy. Now, there are some special circumstances where I do some things differently. The first is in the patient who's continuously symptomatic with moderate bleeding and moderately abnormal vital signs. These patients get repeat labs in four hours to evaluate for any change in the hemoglobin and hematocrit. And if they decompensate sooner or bleed more, then at least it's while I'm waiting for the repeat lab. I have a low threshold to keep someone who's symptomatic from bleeding. The second is in your patient who's pregnant. Now I know this podcast is focused on the non-pregnant patient, but in the event your patient surprisingly comes back with a positive HCG, they need a documented IUP prior to discharge at the least. The third is in a patient where you suspect sexual abuse. If you are considering sexual abuse in a person, these patients need social work involved and protective services prior to the possibility of discharge. The fourth is in a patient who might have a retained foreign object. These must be removed prior to discharge. Consider GYN, ultrasound, or even CT to help with that process. And the fifth, this is for patients that need to be admitted. I will admit a patient to OBGYN if they require transfusions, serial H&H monitoring, or possible definitive surgical care. Awesome. Thanks, Adara. I think those are some great tips on how to think about disposition, how to think about working up a patient, and really to kind of consider the type of information you need when you're determining where your patient's going to go. So now that we've covered how to work up a stable patient, let's cover some essentials of resuscitating an unstable patient that comes in with a concern of vaginal bleeding. So now you look at the triage sheet and you see a 35-year-old female with a BP of 72 over 48, a heart rate of 129, respiratory rate of 26, and a temp of 36.7. As the patient is quickly being roomed, you realize this patient is hemodynamically unstable and needs your attention now rather than in 15 or 20 minutes. 
Even before you enter the room, you need to start assembling your resuscitation team. This is a great time to do several things. First, identify at least one nurse to help you out with placing the patient on the monitor and getting medications. Alert a senior resident or attending that there is a potentially unstable patient in the department. In a bleeding patient like this that appears unstable based on vitals alone, your first thoughts should revolve around an immediate fix to stop the bleeding as well as getting replacement blood products ready. If time allows before you see the patient, inform relevant parties that you might need O-negative blood, such as the transfusion team or nursing. This is a heads up so that they know to hover around you until the patient is assessed. You'll likely want to grab your nurse and tell a member of the team to immediately draw labs such as a CBC, a beta-HCG, type and screen, basic metabolic panel, coagulation panel, and venous lactate. If your patient is bleeding heavily, place two large-bore IVs early. If you cannot get access right away in an unstable patient, consider an IO line early on. You might want to skip the ultrasound-guided IV in an unstable patient since they can take a bit longer to secure. Now in this case, isotonic fluids are not as helpful as blood. You can temporize the hypotension with a liter or two of saline or ringers, but always keep in mind that a bleeding, unstable patient needs blood products. There's some small limited data about the use of estrogen to rapidly replace denuded or bleeding uterine tissue. Again, this is kind of an institution-dependent and, uh, you know, it's contraindicated in patients at a risk for coronary artery disease and thromboembolic events. You may not have the time to get that information early on, so don't think too hard about it. And because it takes a while to be effective, it is also not an initial resuscitation measure, but more of something to keep in the back of your mind. Hey, Joe, don't forget, in a bleeding patient, you must protect yourself first. So as you approach that stretcher, grab the face mask, gown, and a pair of gloves. Good point, Adara. Always smart to protect yourself first. So, you have initiated your team with a plan for access, labs, and resuscitation. You try to examine the patient, and she can't tell you much because she's altered, which means badness if she's losing blood and not perfusing the brain. Now we know for sure the clock is ticking. While waiting for the blood products to arrive, you tell someone, or you do it yourself, to page OB-GYN stat. This might be an instance where you can hammer page, if need be. But they need to be called. So now let's try to control the bleeding as we wait for other products and our consults to arrive. Grab a couple of pairs of sterile gloves, plenty of Curlex gauze, abdominal pads, diapers, a Foley catheter, and really essentially anything else that you can think of or find to stop the bleeding. You can even resort to the Minnesota or Blakemore tubes used for GI bleeds if you're familiar with these. OB-GYN might also want to use what's known as a Bakri catheter for postpartum hemorrhage, and if you have these available in your ED, or you can call someone to get one ready, it could save a life. If you don't have any of these fancy devices, just take the Curlex abdominal pads and pack the vaginal canal to help tamponade the bleeding. You'll want to pour plenty of betadine on the gauze to prevent it from sticking to the uterine wall and ripping away the tissue when removed. You can also try to insert a Foley inside the uterus and inflate to tamponade the bleeding. A standard Foley is usually size 12 to 16 French, but you'll want one that's about 24 French if possible. You can go ahead and fill it with anywhere from probably 60 to 80 cc's of saline, and rumor has it they can even hold up to about 150 cc's or so before bursting. In any event, be sure to get something larger than the normal Foley. Regardless of what you pack the uterus with, whether it's gauze or you're inserting a Foley, this is really going to be incredibly painful for the patient. So please be very aggressive with analgesia, especially when you are actively inserting any tamponade device. Fentanyl works especially well for these short episodes of instrumentation and packing. 
One thing to confirm for sure is that we've identified the correct source of bleeding. So in an unstable patient, do a quick rectal, place a Foley into the bladder and check the color of the urine, and perform a fast to look for free fluid in the pelvis. If you need a refresher on what to look for with your fast exam, I've included a link in the show notes from Dr. Beth Cadigan at Albany Medical Center that quickly covers all the essentials and is definitely worth your time to review. If you are scanning and you see free fluid either in the pelvis or right upper quadrant, along with your history of vaginal bleeding and instability, now is the time to call GYN and get your patient to the OR. If you don't identify intraperitoneal fluid, continue with your GYN exam and try to stop the bleeding. If you see frank, bright red blood flowing from the vagina, this is when to insert the Foley through the cervix, inflate the balloon, and apply gentle traction on the cervix. And while all this excitement is going on at the bedside, there should be someone chart reviewing or asking the family members for a history. It is important to know if the patient has ever had any history of cancer or any known bleeding problem, takes any anticoagulating medications, has ever bled like this before, is pregnant, or might be in a vulnerable position and is at risk for abuse. Great thoughts, Joe. Always important to remember that, above all else, we have to be ready for those life-threatening situations, as rare as they may be. With that, why don't we go ahead and wrap things up? Absolutely. Here are a few take-home points summarizing the highlights. One, for a stable patient, take a focused history and get information about anticoagulating and hormonal medications, while also quickly covering any history of liver, renal, or cardiac disease. Try to quantify bleeding using some terminology such as number of pads per hour, and also knock out the other standard guy-in questions. Then, use your available resources and some of Adara's tips and tricks to be efficient with your exam. Be absolutely sure to take time to speak to the patient alone and ask about sexual activity and probe for a history of trauma or abuse. Get a chaperone for the exam, every time, without exception. Third, by age, you must rule out several diagnoses. In the infant or child, consider foreign bodies, trauma, and abuse. In anyone a bit older, start by ruling out trauma and abuse, but remember the easiest way is to start organizing your thinking by breaking the complaints into painful and not painful categories. In any woman older than 45, and especially when she's postmenopausal, it's time to very seriously consider cancer, both gynecologic and hematologic. Then, from a disposition standpoint, consider how symptomatic the patient is, and don't hesitate to observe her for a few hours if she's on the threshold of stable versus deteriorating. Lastly, from a resuscitation standpoint, Get your team ready early and load the boat. In a busy ED, look for easy-to-use and familiar items, like a large Foley catheter and betadine-soaked gauze to tamponade very bad bleeding. This is very painful, so don't forget the pain meds, and consider fentanyl as a quick-on, quick-off opioid. Also, you'll want IV access within two minutes, and don't hesitate to get IO access if needed in the unstable patient. So, there is our rundown of how to approach vaginal bleeding in the emergency department. Don't forget to check out the show notes for a quick reference when you're working up these patients. Also, don't forget to check out my website at emdocs.net and follow me on Twitter at allarounddoc and Joe Kennedy at joekennedyem. Thanks for joining us at EM Basic and good luck with your EM career. Hey everybody, this is Steve coming back on for just a second. First, I want to say thank you to Adara and Joe for all their hard work on a great episode. I also want to say a word about our bandwidth sponsor, EB Medicine. 
If you're an EM resident, you can get free electronic access to all their past and future issues. Just go to ebmedicine.net slash embasic or go to the link at embasic.org. If you like what you see, pass it along to other residents and tell your attendings that they can get a great discount by using the same link. This month's issue of EM Practice reviews upper GI bleeding, while PEDS EM Practice reviews sepsis and septic shock, two chief complaints that we see a lot in the ED and that can make patients really sick. That's all for now. Until next time, this is Steve Carroll for EM Basic, signing off.